Hi, my name is Gary Myers. And I am Joe Fondo. And we're the hosts of the Answering the Call podcast. This is the podcast where we talk to people who are answering God's call. Today, I talk with George Ross. He tells us about three things to look for when you think God may be calling you to plant a church. And so, here's George. So you essentially come here and help church planters and, of course, the Send Relief. Um, What is the Send program? What is this? Sure. Um, The Send program is part of an initiative that the North American Mission Board started. That initiative is to see a church planting movement happen in urban, unreached cities in North America. So right now we have 32 cities. Uh, We count Puerto Rico now as actually a city, so that would be 33. So we're looking to see churches planted, and churches plant churches, so we're partnering with local churches to see churches planted in some of the most unreached areas of our country. Most of those areas have three things in common. They have a lot of diversity, uh, they have a very uh, dense population, and they have a lot of lostness. So as we look at places like New York, Vancouver, St. Louis, Chicago, San Diego, San Francisco, New Orleans, Miami, Atlanta, just to name a few of the cities, those cities all have a larger population of lost people, and we want to see churches planted there. Mm. Is this why you came to New Orleans originally through the SEND um, process? It is. I was a local pastor outside of Memphis, Tennessee, planted a church, and I pastored it for almost nine years. Mm. Through that church, we worked with several other churches that were a part of a church planting network. Mm. Uh, we called it the 1-8 Church Planting Network. And at that time, there really wasn't a lot of church planting networks. There were just a few of them. There wasn't a lot of church planting like it is today. So we were really an early uh, picture of what it meant to partner together as churches to do that. So I actually led that as well. I was the director of that. Mm. Uh, I did that one day a week, and then I would pastor my church. um, And we worked in partnership with the Mississippi Baptist Convention, which was a great partnership for us. And we saw a lot of churches planted in Mississippi through that relationship I was able to be in some meetings with the North American Mission Board, and through that, they began to inquire about the possibility of me moving to New Orleans to be the the NAM missionary here. So you were in Tennessee and parts of Mississippi. North Mississippi. North Mississippi. Um, And then you transitioned to New Orleans. Yes. um, Which is basically the same. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there is a simil- similar thing in river culture, I guess I would say. There's the, the delta, which we were not too terribly far from, uh, but it's a lot uh, different. Certainly there's a quite a different uh, culture here uh, than it is there. New Orleans, its own little island in the south. So moving from there to here was a, an adjustment. There's no doubt I really struggled the first year being here. Uh, my family struggled a little bit being here. Our kids actually did better than my wife and I. But it took a while because there is such a unique cultural difference between New Orleans and where I was from. What was one of the areas that you kind of struggled the most with? Like what was for somebody who's maybe feels that God might be calling them to a place like New Orleans? Um, they're going to be listening closely right now. What, what was this like for you? You know, we were never in fear. I think I hear people's experiences when they move to an urban area, and oftentimes they associate uh, a fear along with that. Maybe it's a fear of a crime. Maybe it's a fear of the culture that they're moving to. We never experienced that. For us, it was more loneliness and isolation that was a struggle. So the church that I came from, we had great friends. Uh, We had great friends at the church. We had great friends that were really connected to our family. I had good friends outside the church, uh, so that was beneficial too. It was helpful too. And when you when we moved to New Orleans, uh, there were a lot of different things at play 
just because of uh, how denominational structures work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we just found ourselves really isolated, really alone that first year. And then there were the cultural uh, you know, components of that. Part of it is just a, a lot of unchurched people here. Uh, part of that is that you're dealing with some crime and poverty. I've never been robbed before, and I've lived in New Orleans for five years, and we've been robbed uh, twice. So that's a little bit different. Uh, it's a little bit of a different experience, experience than sure. where I was from. And those things are things that you have to adjust to, and uh, we did by God's grace. But, yeah, some differences in that, no doubt. Do you find that church planners coming here experience the same kind of things that you experienced when you first came here? I do. I think, uh, in fact, I counsel most of our church planners that come here. Don't make any huge decisions your first six months. Learn to love the city. Learn to love the people. Get to know the city. Get to know the people. Because it was really after about a year, nine months, where we really begin to see God change our heart and give us a great love. We love what we do. We love the city of New Orleans. We love the people of New Orleans. And uh, that came through. We really believe God working in our life uh, Mm -hmm. through prayer, through his word, through experiences and circumstances. So uh, I tell the guys that are here, you have those first six months where you are dealing with the the loneliness. You're leaving behind people if you're coming here from someplace else. Uh, Now, if you're from here in New Orleans, you may just be dealing with the struggles of what it means to be in church planting ministry here in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's a good rule of thumb. Don't make any major decisions your first six months here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get to know the city. Get to know the people. Learn to love the people. Learn to love the city. And uh, So so how, how do you do that? How do you learn to love the people and love the city? Like, um, so say a person's like, I'm totally, yes, I want to do that, but where do I start? You know, where, where does a new church planner start learning to love the people and love the city? Well, if you know uh, about New Orleans, one of the things you'll learn if you learn about New Orleans, uh, you know, contextualization is where you're uh, coming in and you're listening, you're learning uh, about the context you're in, about the, the beliefs, the background, the history of the place that you move to. Uh, so for a church planner coming in, that is incredibly important. If they would stop for a moment, number one, they don't know that context. They need to listen. They need to learn. They need to hear from other people. Uh, and in New Orleans, you have a culture that's built around a very neighborhood mentality. So if you uh, go by the official neighborhood map, there's 73 uh, neighborhoods here in New Orleans. And many times people will tell you, one of the things I find funny is when I'm talking to a native New Orleanian, uh, they usually tell me what high school they went to, and they usually tell me what neighborhood they're from. Uh, that makes a, a it, that, that's just different than where you're usually coming from. And I feel like that's a good fact to know coming in, because, you, you know, if you come in fresh and you're like, I, I could care less about that data, you know what I mean? You know, but that means something here. It and does. So it's important. It does mean something here. And for you to love the people and love the city, you've got to be out with the people and in the city. So that's just part of the journey of getting to know and listen. And I think as we pray for, uh, as we experience, as we're with the people we're trying to reach that are far from God, uh, the Lord uh, gives you a passion and gives you a heart for those people. And, and you end up loving those people and you end up loving that city. You, um, you're also a certified gospel coach. Yes. Um, and we were talking a little bit before the podcast about that. Um, and you told me something interesting about when people, um, church planners come into the city and you, you're coaching them, um, or planners who are already in the city, pastors who are already in the city. And you mentioned, uh, the three C's that you kind of go by. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Tell me about this. What are the three C's? I, I forgot them already. I'm supposed to remember them because they're three C's, but... Uh. No, you're good. We're looking for three things. Now, certainly there are many more things that go into a church planter, planting a church in a city like New Orleans, but one is calling. 
has God called you here? Do you have a clear and definite call from the Lord uh, that's been affirmed by mm-hmm. others, your local church, and you're here no matter how things go, and you can hold on clearly to that call of God. So in my life, uh, that's been very uh, Im- important because, again, my first six months, we had to really re- rest in the fact we knew God called us here. Mm. And even when things weren't going good, even when we were thinking, hey, we made a terrible mistake, uh, why are we here? We went back and said, you know what, God called us here, and uh, he hasn't called us anywhere else. And because we know that, we're going to uh, persevere through. Calling is important. Uh, character. Uh, do you have character? And a, a character, um, a walk with the Lord, a mm-hmm. character of integrity. Uh, you have. A How does a person know if life. they have character? Well, one of the things that happens in an AM assessment so if you're going to come to plant a church in New Orleans, you're going to go through what the North American Mission Board has put together as an assessment. Part of that assessment is many people are going to be asked very penetrating and probing questions about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call one of the assessments we do as a 360, and it's a 360 for the uh, reality. We feel like we get a full view of mm-hmm. who you are. So we have people that have uh, been over you as a supervisor. We've had people that have been very close to you and your family. We have had people uh, that you have discipled. You are going to have people uh, do this on you, and it's anonymous. So it really cultivates some uh, what some honesty, we think, mm. in, in who uh, is filling out the particular assessment. And the, the planters actually never see that part of it, but it really helps us think through, okay, has there been an issue of integrity in the past? Mm. Has there been an issue of character in the past? Uh, that also goes into uh, an assessment with the husband and wife. So we do something called prepare and enrich. Prepare mm. and enrich assessments, all the planters do that. That helps us to identify character issues that may be there, background checks, financial checks. All those things go into the process of a church planter coming here. So by the time they're approved as a church planter, there's been a lot of tools that have been implemented in their life to really assess, hey, to the best of our ability and through the testimony of others, uh, we've looked at your background, we've looked at your life, and we sense your personal character. I think this is really good. Um, I think this is a really good kind of metric or or measurement for like calling of God in general. You know what I mean? Um, like, so for instance, you've got a pastor at a church and someone is sensing a call to come be on their church staff or out of their church and so forth. Um, so I think that's really cool. So there's uh, calling, there's character, and what's the third? Competency. We just want to make sure you have some competency, uh, leadership skills, that are going to enable you to be a successful church planner. Okay. Um, you know, you've talked about, on your blog, um, you've talked about kind of the um, uh, impulsive decisions and how early in your ministry impulsive decisions were, um, what you say is the greatest leadership deficiency that you had. Um, I feel like in some ways that kind of ties into that third C, right? We are looking at uh, competency and leadership. Um, but before the podcast, we were talking about this, and you told me something interesting, and you told me that sometimes it's hard to kind of find these things on your own. So tell me a little bit about that. Like you kind of came to a point of self-awareness where you began to see things that you didn't see other before, and they were holding you back before. Um, how can a person find that and get to that point? Well, for me, I'll back up a little bit. I did not think, uh, you know, one of the areas of leadership that I was very 
immature in and I need a lot of growth in was I was impatient and I made impulsive decisions. Uh, for me, that wasn't a competency issue. That was a character issue. Mm. So that flowed out of lack of character in my life of being patient in my walk with the Lord. Uh, that flowed out of a uh, lack of character in my life because oftentimes impulsive decisions are because you're worried about the approval of man uh, or the approval of someone else or being accepted uh, by those around you. They see you're good. Hey, I made this decision. It worked out really well, uh, and I've got to make this decision so it works out really well so people will think I'm a good leader. Uh, that, at the end of the day, is a character issue. Hmm. So part of, um, you know, I think what you asked and, and what you said, how do you find those things out, is you've got to be willing to have people in your life uh, what, it's what I call that have permission to adjust your self-perception. So who is it that you've asked to come alongside of you that you give permission to adjust your self-perception? Uh, no one likes to be told they're doing something poorly. No one likes to be mm -hmm. told, hey, uh, this you're not doing this well uh, or you're struggling in this area. But the reality of it is we do. Mm -hmm. And the reality of it is uh, that our propensity, we can lead out of the flesh. Uh, we can lead out of the wrong motivations. Uh, many times my impulsiveness which, uh, you know, were just you know, decisions I should have prayed over more, I should have been more patient about, uh, I should have gotten more counsel from others about. Uh, oftentimes those impulsive decisions were rooted in the wrong motivation. Mm -hmm. My motivation was, hey, I've got to be a, a good church planner. And at the end of the day, that shouldn't be anybody's motivation. If you're in Christ Jesus, uh, your identity comes from Christ. So your mm -hmm. motivation is not to be approved, uh, to be good at something, your motivation is you have been loved as much as you can be loved in Christ Jesus. You can't be loved anymore. Jesus is worth it. Now let me be faithful today. I think the uh, point about having someone who can basically tell you the truth, the hard truth, someone that you trust and you listen to is really important. Um, so, so here's my question now. How do, you, how do you find that person? In other words, you know, they've said that everybody, everyone should have a, a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas in their life, somebody above them that's feeding into them, somebody below them they're feeding into, and then just kind of like this person on their same level. Who who do you think is kind of the ideal person when when someone's looking for this person to be to hold them accountable? Should this be like a uh, a Barnabas that's kind of like a peer or should it be a Paul or or even a Timothy? What should they look for? Well, it's probably not going to be in the you know Timothy category. I wouldn't imagine it would be. Possibly it could. Um the person who's adjusting your self-perception is somebody you have a close relationship with. It's someone who sees you. It's someone who knows you. It is someone who can move beyond being a yes person and just tell you what you want to hear. And it's really that person uh, that does love you, and that person loves you enough to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, two things uh, in our culture currently hinder that. One, we're hypercritical. Uh, we're critical about everything, and we're critical towards everything. And the other thing that hurts us in that, and which when we're hypercritical about everything, most people don't want somebody critiquing them. Mm. Uh, so we are live in a hypercritical culture, and we also live in a hypersensitive culture. Mm. So because we live in a hypersensitive culture, uh, when you tell me something that is for my good, my propensity is to have my feelings hurt. And when I have my feelings hurt, I remove myself from the situation. Uh, and, and oftentimes that propensity leads to isolation, and that's a terrible place for a person in leadership to be. You never want to be isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, ministers fall because of isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, isolation is the most damaging place you can be as a leader. 
So uh, a person adjusting your self-perception is going to be someone I think you're close to, someone who sees you, someone you know that loves you. Uh, I've had um, many people in my life that have had permission to do that. Uh, well, I, let me backtrack. I, I use that phrase too loosely there. Uh, I've had some good friends that have had permission to adjust my self-perception. Mm. Uh, I have a couple now in my life. I've always had a couple in my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're going to tell me things about myself. Sometimes I may not agree with, but I know they're telling me that because they love me mm-hmm. and they care for me. Mm-hmm. And I need to listen, even if I don't like it, even if I, I don't agree with it at the moment, even if my pride uh, wells up and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm strongly thinking, well, I don't think they're right in that then I need to fall back on the fact, you know what, I know they love me, I know they care about me, and they're really trying to make sure I'm like Jesus. Do you think that hyper-sensitive um, part that you're talking about, do you think that ever kind of goes away? Is that something that having this friend kind of helps mitigate, or is that something that you kind of always have to deal with? No, I think it's also attributed to the fact that we run much of our feelings, ba- are we we make many of our decisions based on how we feel, and uh, we uh We've certainly diminished uh, spiritual disciplines in our life to the point and place where spiritual disciplines cultivates a foundation of truth. Mm. Uh, a foundation of truth always trumps feelings. Mm. And I want to be careful about that because people's feelings are very, very important. Mm. Uh, and I think you can you can minimize someone's feelings and uh, do great damage. So I don't want to do that. And I don't even mm. want it to sound like I'm saying that. Mm-hmm. But there is the, the reality uh, I think the neglect of spiritual disciplines we've seen, and I think they are culturally. I deal with a lot of uh, people in spiritual disciplines. My uh, doctorate is in spiritual formation, so I have a lot of uh, interaction with trying to help people uh, embrace and pursue spiritual disciplines in mm-hmm. their life. And many, many people struggle with simple spiritual disciplines of prayer, being in the Word of the Lord mm-hmm. consistently. And I think that is something that is a huge epidemic in the life of believers today. And I think that contributes to the fact that when we're not in the Word, we're not in prayer, we don't have that foundation of truth in our life, we don't lean in on the sovereignty mm-hmm. of God, and we uh, lean in on our own feelings. Mm-hmm. And our emotions become uh, paramount in the decisions we made and how we act. You know, I notice, at least in my own life, that when, I, um, when I'm not at that place, mm-hmm. it's always super subtle, like my getting there, right? And uh, you mentioned that you your doctorate is in spiritual formations. Um, is there a way that you know how to like or 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 signs for church planters who are kind of moving in that direction that you begin to spot like maybe in your coaching or something like that? Like how how does a person know when they're slowly moving into there without knowing? You know what I mean? Like what signs can they look for to become more self aware? Uh, ask yourself what what is the motivation for why you're doing this you know mm. whether it's uh, adding a new service whether it's uh, mm. saying something from the pulpit are you trying to impress a seminary professor that's out in your audience uh, always ask yourself what is your motivation mm. at the end of the day your motivation needs to be Christ so I think that's a good question and when you're not answering that question correctly when you are being honest and you're saying you know what uh, my motivation is that uh, you know uh, uh, Dr. Brooks is, is in my church listening today, or my motivation is if we add another service, people are going to think we're a great church, or my motivation is uh, they're going to think I'm smart if I say this. Again, what is your motivation? And your motivation needs to be uh, and flow from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good. I was writing that down. Where is your identity coming from as well? I think another question would be, you know, what's identifying uh, you right now? A question I ask uh, church planners to use is uh, just to ask yourself this question, what's currently defining you? And how do you find out what's currently defining you? Uh, Whatever is uh, your greatest disappointment right now, 
is probably what's defining you. Do uh, church planners who come to the city ever fail? Hey, they do. What does that look like? Some fail because they neglect accountability. They neglect uh, being in a good brotherhood of other planters, and they find themselves in isolation. So more often than not, that's the case. Isolation. Uh, they find themselves in isolation. Maybe ministry wasn't going good. Maybe marriage wasn't going good. And uh, they begin to believe the lie that, hey, everything's going good over here for so-and-so, but nothing's going good for me. And then they begin to draw back and pull back. Uh, those are times where we see failure in church planning, hmm. and uh, those are the most dangerous times. What do you think? So if there's a, like a group of church planners and they see one of their members or one of their group kind of maybe showing signs of this, what should they do? Like, should they just be very active and reach out to them and like never accept no for an answer? Or We use two words uh, here in New Orleans, uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. So our planner spouses, uh, we are always trying to cultivate sisterhood. My mm. wife leads out in that. Mm. Uh, I'm always trying to cultivate brotherhood. Mm. Brotherhood exists in a large group environment. Brotherhood exists in a smaller group environment. Mm. So we have those conversations. Part of it is having the conversation and caring enough to ask where people are. And, yes, we have had conversations with uh, brothers here in the city that have isolated themselves. And because we love them to say, hey, we know this is dangerous. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous for me. And uh, we need you to step back in and, and get connected. How can we help you? What's going on? I mean, we want to approach it in a, in a ministry uh, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever had people just be like, leave me alone, man? Yeah, I have. How do you handle that? Continue to show grace, kindness, and love and mm. uh, let them know, hey, it's not a, uh, something. This isn't a, uh, defining you. And uh, we need to recognize that uh, God cares about you. He cares about your family. He cares about your your marriage. And uh, we want to work through this with you. Don't believe the lies of the kingdom of darkness. You're not alone. And just to continue to love them and uh, trust that God's going to bring them to a point in place to realize that. When was the first time that you realized that um, God was calling you to plant a church? I was a youth pastor at a church in North Mississippi, and I'd been there for almost eight years. I think I was starting my eighth year. Uh, I was having some opportunities to preach. It was a larger church. So uh, our Wednesday nights were actual church services. We preached, and I was uh, preaching through books of the Bible for most of my time as a youth minister. I didn't know any different. And because of that, we had a lot of adult workers and things, and uh, I would preach some on Sunday. Just the affirmation of not only the leaders of the church, but ultimately the affirmation of the pastor. Hey, you know, we don't know a lot about church planning, but we think you could do this, and uh, we want to send you out to do this. So that was an affirmation from the people that were around me. Um, and... Uh, God began to, you know, stir in my heart a, a sense to do that. That's really interesting. So what you're saying is people around you essentially kind of pushed you into that position, and then once you were in it, you began to sense that maybe this is what God—am I, am I hearing that right? Uh, maybe not Not totally pushed. I, I or, knew that uh, God had—I had no doubt God had called me to ministry. I'd been in it for eight years. I knew God had called me to, to ministry, and, and preaching and teaching was mm-hmm. a huge part of that. Um, I had a zeal for missions. I had organized and strategized a, a mission philosophy for our student ministry. We had already partnered with Church Plants as a student ministry in Toronto. So we had a three-year partnership to work with Church Plants in Toronto, Canada. So there was a lot of interaction I was having with church planning, a lot of interaction I was having with missions and evangelism in general. And through that, uh, I think there was just an awareness, not only in my heart, but the people around me in the life of the church that were godly, godly people uh, that God used to affirm that. And I think that's how God does when, you know, people ask, how do you know you're called to ministry? Uh, I certainly uh, felt a sense internally 
uh, and confirmation from the Word of God that God had called me to be a minister. I felt that. Uh, there was no handwriting on the wall, no burning mm-hmm. bush or anything like that. Uh, but I sensed that strongly uh, when I was around 11th grade. I uh, followed that through, preached for uh, many years as a youth pastor. And then God just really used the, the local church I was in to continue to uh, affirm that call in my life. You know, mm-hmm. no one questioned uh, when it was really becoming public. Uh, no one in our church questioned that uh, I was going to go out and plant a church. They could all say, man, I could see how God would do that. And then people would uh, had already up to that point in place in time say, hey, we see that this is something that God certainly begin, uh, has done in your life and has prepared you for. So the people have got to affirm that. And I think that's very important. I think people that leave uh, churches, uh, especially if they're sent out and their their church isn't affirming them. So we've got one uh, immediate rule that's in New Orleans. If your local church isn't affirming you, then then we really can't talk about you being called to the city. Hmm. So if you don't have a local church saying, hey, we affirm uh, Joe's call uh, to be a pastor, we hmm. affirm Joe's call to go out and plant a church, then my counsel is always, hey, you need to go back and talk to your pastor. You need to go back and talk to your church. Uh, you need to have the faith family that you're a part of that have seen you and they have watched you act and seen your life over the last few years. You need that church to affirm what's going on in your life. Hmm. So I think that's very, very important. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, you can go to the NAM website, uh, nam.net. That's easy enough. So namb.net, and you can find New Orleans. So you click on New Orleans, you'll find a lot about the city of New Orleans. You'll find a lot about what we're doing here in New Orleans. I also have a personal blog. It's georgeross.net, uh, georgeross.net, and you can click on there, find out more information about coaching, uh, also things happening in New Orleans as well. All right. Thanks, George. Hey, absolutely. Thank you for your partnership. All right. God bless you guys. Hey, it's Gary and Joe here again. Would you do us a favor? If you like this podcast, go to iTunes and leave us a review. This would mean the world to us. Thanks.